Hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Hey, Spencer, indeed. Spencer, here we are, halfway through our season seven coverage of HBO's Game of Thrones, episode four, mm -hmm. Spools of War, and it's a whopper. It's a whopper. It is the climax that the first half of this season has been building to, and honestly, I was kind of curious going into it, because I didn't really remember any part of it other than the big Field of Fire battle. Yeah, well, straight up, I'm doing my book nerd bitching off the jump street. Oh, um, <laughs> this is different. Yeah. Well, it's called Field of Fire in the books. In the show, they gave it the name Loot Train Attack. Come well, on, man. Oh, come, you've got history here. You're directly mirroring historical events. At least call it Field of Fire 2.0 or something. That's the thing. Like, you know, Martin takes, you know, uh, the amount of time to write these books that it would to, like, cast a marble statue. Mm -hmm. But... At least they're somewhat poetic, right? They don't. He doesn't just rush through. He, he has to name a battle. He thinks about it. Field of Fire. Field of Fire, awesome name for a battle. But anyway, I'm getting started on a negative well, foot here. I don't want to be like you, Spencer, and just sit here and, and bash well, the show the entire time. So I'm going to get back positive. Well, let me tie this to one of your favorite characters. It's essentially that the showrunners are the, the Archmeister naming the book, and we're saying that George R. R. Martin is Sam versus the names. Trying to be more poetic about it. <laughs> yeah, nice callback. Thank you. Nice I tried. Nice callback the last episode. Okay, everybody, if you're listening uh, to this episode, you probably listened to previous episodes. This is a, a podcast started by the Mangum Talks podcast channel, and our goal is to refresh you on Game of Thrones in advance of Season 8. Spencer, anything you want to add? No, I think that pretty much sums it home, though. We have hopes over the next few weeks we're going to start expanding this to other topics, other things. I mean, we only have a few, a few, a few weeks of Game of Thrones left, and then the sky's the limit. Whatever y'all want, want, want to hear, we will do. What a segue. We're becoming professional broadcasters because I am going to surprise you, Spencer. We have a new segment for episode four. We're going to start with... I was not segment. told about this decision. The end segment is called Listener Questions. That's right. We've got listener questions. Wait, wait, wait. We have listeners? We have listeners and they have questions. I thought we and were just... those that want to know how to submit your list questions or just any feedback, we want to hear all feedback, good and bad, you can go to mangumtalks.com in the upper right-hand corner. You'll see a Contact Us link, which will send you to a form, and it'll fire over to me. Spencer doesn't get those, uh, and I'll share them with him uh, at my discretion. Which is useful because I'm generally just talking to the voices in my head anyway. You, vis you listeners are truly imaginary to me. So we've got two questions and one piece of feedback. The piece of feedback was submitted by multiple people, and it was basically the observation that in reviewing a one-hour television show, we had a two-hour podcast. To that I say, I make no apologies. We are proud of our over overly verbose nature, truly. Yeah, we will try to not let the podcast lag, but... They're probably going to be longer than the episode most of the time, and that's because of the format we're picking. We're doing a pretty detailed recap, and then we go in, we launch into book stuff, and we launch into best lines, and we try to do a little comedy. So it's always going to be a longer than the episode. If if you don't like that, uh, I would like to hear from you. So go to mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, contact us. You are so professional now. When did this transition to, to you happen? Uh, about episode three. Oh, okay. When we were oh, okay. we got a lot of reps in. We did two hours. <laughs> <laughs> we did more than two hours. The total recording on episode three was nightmarish. You and your storms. Oh God. Okay, on to listener questions. These will be pretty quick. The first one, basically, it, it kind of. I'm going to paraphrase the question, but it basically is saying, "Hey, the show has gone way past the books now. When we're watching the show, should we expect that we are watching?" 
basically a spoiler of what will be in the books, or do we now have basically two separate narratives? And I'll, I'll take a first crack at this, Spencer, and you Please. can jump in. It's actually a timely question because just this week, George R. R. Martin was interviewed at Worldcon, and he got this exact question. And he's gotten it before, and he's given consistent answers. And basically what he says is it was his understanding that the show would take a little bit more time from the content from uh, Feast of Crows and A Dance with Dragons. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They combined those two huge books into just one quick banging out season. And Martin then said, well, then, you know, I didn't have any content to give them. Now, in the showrunner's defense, even if they had taken three seasons to do those two books, Martin still doesn't have a book out. Yeah, we'd still be here. Exactly. But anyway, Martin says that basically all he was allowed to give or he was able to give is just a rough outline and some big ticket plot points. So I think what we can expect is – two separate plots, two separate narratives, two separate stories that hit the same high marks. Spencer, what do you think? Yeah, man, I think it, I don't even think they at this point they've got cliff notes. I think that they've got a map that goes to certain destinations and they know what those destinations are called, but how we get from point A to B to C to D is pure fan fiction. It's their own imagination for how those events should occur, and I think they're using their own artistic lens for what they what, either what they want or what they feel the show audience wants which I think has increased the amount of uh, fan service worthy scenes we've seen over the last few seasons is they're trying to appeal to what they feel are the desires of the show audience rather than necessarily what George R. R. Martin intends. Yeah. I mean, it's some of that. I, I do think that they're still trying to, to make a plot that is surprising and interesting. We really be interested in season eight because that's really their opportunity to go back to like season three cutthroat status and just yeah. slash kill like half this, the cast. But if it ends up with like Danny and John married and Danny's queen, like <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to do a pretty big win. And I feel like there's an episode in this season that very much embodies them kind of working in the dark as to how to get the characters where they need them to be. And we will talk about that in detail when it happens. Yeah, that's going to that's gonna be a pretty long book nerd bitching session for that Oh, one. yeah. All right, second question. This is an easy one, Spencer. Mm-hmm. Favorite character? Um, <laughs> that, that's an easy show. one? First. Yeah, I think so. Well, for you, I, I, I can bet money right now who your favorite character is. Oh, wait, wait. Book or show? Did he say? He um, or she? Yeah, so the question was just favorite character. I'm going to split it up into book and show. Okay. Um, I'm happy to go first if you need a little time to think. Mine will probably be a pretty long explanation <laughs> go on stannis stannis okay done you know right, i really appreciate these talks that we have where we really get a clear insight into you as a person and your character it's just the level of detail that you provide that we appreciate so much how about you give us a justification you prick very stannis-esque thank you uh no I, I think that stannis has the best claim i think he is the uh the most capable uh ruler most capable military commander that we see, especially in the books. But I, I think in the show, especially in the early, early seasons, they established that Stannis is a, a just ruler. He has the right claim and he can rally folks around him when he needs to. It's not his strong point, but he also puts people around him that helps with that. And I think he's the, you know, short of these late season Daenerys, this late season Daenerys character, which is kind of just been dropped in our lap. Uh, he, he's the person that I felt like the realm had the best chance with. And, you know, if you read the books, he's just a badass. I mean, there's just no getting around it. So yeah, Stannis is my pick. I actually right now have my, um, 
Stannis Flaming Heart t-shirt on as we as we uh, tape the podcast. And this here is an example of the different views the showrunners have potentially to George R. R. Martin, because the showrunners expressed several times that they hated Stannis as a character, that they disliked him entirely, that they viewed him as a villain, and they painted an in for him that is probably not true for how he ultimately ended the books, which, you know, hurts you on a very personal level, which I believe you're still attending counseling for. Uh... They cannot put their thoughts in my head. <laughs> they tried. They tried very hard. It. You can't do it, Benioff and Weiss. You can you can write out you can kill Stannis in a very stupid scene. I'm still gonna like Stannis. You can't control that. Ripping hard for Team Stannis. Hashtag one true king. Spencer, take it away. Favorite character. Uh, I mean, I, it's hard for me to say one favorite character just because of how many there are book and show you and how to, many different roles. To. I'm gonna say somebody. Um, but I'll just put them on the list as among my favorite characters. Among my favorite characters that are dominant in both the book and the show, and this is I say two just because I like them for the same reasons, uh, Ned and Davos. I They are both very honorable, good people in a world that is difficult for those people to function in. Uh, they are the closest thing that the books have to a consistent heart, that consistent to have individuals that you can cheer as they do the decisions that you want to succeed. And so as much as the show, as much as much as the show in the book makes it difficult for those characters to survive and be happy and accomplish anything, they're I, I, I adore them for trying, and I think in some ways, particularly Ned is unnecessarily stereotyped as being an idiot, particularly by the show, which I don't think is fair. So for characters there in both in the book and show, I love the two of them. For a pretty much book only character that I adore, uh Wyman Manderley. Uh which you're familiar enough with the books that you know Wyman Manderley and why I like him, and it, I missed having him and other nor- northern lords be more prominent on the show. The North remembers, Sir Davos. North remembers, and this mummer's farce is almost done. Oh, we can just, we, we can discuss yeah. him as a character at another point. Yeah. Okay, so that's the new segment, which is listener feedback slash questions. You want to give us feedback? We want to hear your feedback. Or if you have questions, megatalks.com, up right-hand corner, click contact us. Okay, we're going to jump into recap. Spencer, you ready? I'm ready. In the sense that I just right, listen to you talk for the next hour, but go. Oh, no, you jump in. All right, we start with, and by the way, it may go longer than an hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we start with, uh, I haven't been talking about the flashbacks in earlier episodes, but I think this one's particularly relevant because it starts right out with showing you scenes of the dagger that was used to try to kill Bran in, in episode or season one and that was supposedly owned by Littlefinger but was won by Tyrion. And it, it's, it has been absent from the show for a while, so I think they're just trying to refresh the casual viewer as to what, what that is because it's probably going to come into play this episode. So... We have that in the flashbacks. Of course, the theme plays and the Baratheon boys' ghost apparently still rule over King's Landing, despite all the actual human Lannisters who are in it. And we go through the rest of the uh, the sequence. We don't. I don't think we get any new locations in the opener. But I do want to point out, Spencer. Do you know who uh, directed this episode? Oh, I saw it. I don't remember who was it. Matt Shackman. And I feel like it was a gutsy call for the showrunners to pick this guy. So this is – Matt Shackman is a, a renowned Hollywood director of both film and television. But here are his television credits. Always Sunny in Philadelphia, Fargo, Mad Men, and The Good Wife. Interesting. You, you right? Know? Yeah. And then they pick him for, you know, spoiler alert, like one of the bigger battle sequences they've ever done on this show. And he, he was the director for it. So gutsy call. I think it worked out. But I just thought it was really interesting they would pick a guy that doesn't have any 
history that I could see on his Wikipedia page in 10 minutes of research uh, actually directing big, large-scale battle sequences. That, that is interesting, because mo- like the first 70% of the episode I'm pretty indifferent to, maybe even a little bit mediocre. The battle scene's the most incredible part, so kudos to him for moving outside his usual comfort zone. And they did a thing this season that I thought was really smart, is that they, they had directors do two episodes that are uh, sequential. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was great, because it, it established some level of continuity, because, of course, the next episode picks up immediately after this episode ends, so it's great to have one director doing all of them. Agreed. Okay, we start the episode at... This is at, this is at Blackwater Rush, right, Spencer? I mean, this is right at the at the river, I guess, before what? you get into King's Landing. I mean, I don't think they've made it quite that far yet, because the earliest shots, there's still, there's still High Garden looming in the background, but that's definitely the direction that they're heading in. Okay, yeah, no, good point. So for this scene, I think they're still probably in the reach. So Jamie is securing the gold that they got from High Garden, and he pays Bronn a pretty handsome, heavy-looking sack of coin. And Bronn, not impressed. Uh, he really has latched onto this idea of a castle. Uh, he seems to have gone very tired of gold. And he actually suggests that he could get High Garden, uh, which Jamie dismisses for some very solid reasons. Uh, namely, Cersei's going to take that back in about 45 minutes, so mm-hmm. we get the hell out of here. Uh, that's really it from this, this scene, Spencer, anything you want to add? Well, I, I would add that, uh, I find that it, I mean, a large portion of the Lannister forces are from the Reach. We know at the very minimum that the Tarleys are with them and probably some other Reach lords as well. Are they okay with essentially the entire treasury of the Reach being taken up to King's Landing and used by Cersei? I mean, that's kind of their money too, isn't it? I mean, they've declared for House Lannister, so yeah, I mean, you you pay you pay your lord. I, I don't know. I mean, they, he says it's, you can imagine that the speech that Jamie would give. It's you've declared for Queen Cersei. It's wartime. These resources are needed to win the war. I don't know what you say to your lord in response to that. Well, they do. And we'll see it also with the food that the, essentially the Lannisters are taking everything of value in the Reach and bringing it up with them. I find it interesting. Well, very minimum, we don't see any protest from the Reach lords in this point. Yeah, no, we don't. Okay, we can move on to King's Landing, where Cersei is talking with Tycho Nestoris, and has apparently just told Tycho that she is going to basically uh, repay the Lannister debt in one installment. <laughs> and he's impressed. He's really impressed here. He's like, oh my gosh, Like I thought your dad was great, but you're really great. But one thing that struck me as weird is he was so impressed with her, but then it comes out in the conversation that she hasn't paid him yet. What? <laughs> The news has made it back, and they, apparently like the Lannister army, are assuming that nothing could possibly interfere with the check clearing and making it to the bank. Yeah, it's weird. It's kind of like if I went to Blue Apron and I was like, I've got a podcast with five million listeners. And they're like, oh, that is really impressive. And I'm like, I'll get you the numbers later. <laughs> Just trust me. You know, you're a person, yeah. you're a person of honor. There's no reason they have to question that. It's not like, you know, you were already in debt to the equivalent of trillions of dollars. <laughs> I just thought it was weird that he just trusted her. But anyway, uh, she says, you know, Jamie's with is on the way back with, with all the gold. And Tycho mentions that, and this is this what I thought was really funny, because this was kind of Cersei calling his bluff, because then Tycho goes, well, uh, we kind of got used to the interest payments that you were <laughs> giving us, which it's like, well, why are you there? If you wanted the interest payments, you you effectively called in a debt, she paid it, now you're like, damn, I really like those interest payments. Do you find it realistic, by the way, that she's able to pay off the entire crown's debt to the Iron Bank in one fell swoop? I mean, they, they were in debt to the tune of millions, not counting the interest she hasn't been paying. And I know the 
uh, the Tyrells are wealthy, but able to pay off the entire debt like that, that simply? Is that is that realistic? It certainly wouldn't be in a modern world. I don't know. I, I, I had the same thought. I mean, the show at least does pay service to the fact that the Tyrells are the most wealthy family in Westeros. So they do establish that they're very, very wealthy. You know, the plausibility of them having, you know, coin on hand to pay the whole thing. I don't know. But it does work out because then we move on and Tycho's kind of floats the idea of another loan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he wants those interest payments. And so it's interesting because it's kind of like exactly what a credit card company does to you. Like you, if you, out of Spencer, you're a fiscal conservative through and through, a Bush Republican. But you uh-huh. know, if you are like most Americans and you've ever maxed out a credit card, I can tell you if you max out the credit card and then you pay it all back in one installment, what does the company do? They up your credit limit. That's basically what Tycos does here. <laughs> that, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yes, that is exactly what occurs in that point. So anyway, he floats the idea of another uh, loan, and, and they talk about maybe Cersei purchasing the services of the Colton Company, which Tycos knows well. They, they've helped the Iron Bank um, secure some debts that people weren't paying before, which kind of sh- – a little subtle hint there that the, the Iron Bank has some teeth. We haven't seen it yet in the show, but – but they do. Is this the first um, reference? Okay. We've, is this the first reference we've yeah, had to the gold company? It is, and you you jumped the gun on me, Spencer, because I literally in my notes have the golden company. Period. Take it away, Spencer. <laughs> uh, so should we go into book nerd bitching fully right now, or should I just say that the gold gold company is incredibly important in the books, plays a decisive role, and has an incredible role in the history of Westeros? And so it's nice to get a name drop reference to them, even if that name drop essentially makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, I think if you could just give the the listeners like a two to three sentence, it's going to be hard for you. Two to three sentences of just who they are. A gold company. So they get a sense of what, what Cersei's talking about. Yeah. Gold company is the most reputable um, mercenary company in Essos, the eastern continent to Westeros, and it's primarily filled and staffed with Westerosi exiles. That It was famously created by Targaryen, by Targaryen bastards that were fleeing after a civil war and created a mercenary company so that they could eventually come back to Westeros and take it. A lot of characters that we know from the show have served in it in various times. Jorah served in the Gold Company. Uh, the Red Viper served in the Gold Company. It is regularly home to bastards, second sons, and other people that are not able to live in Westeros anymore for various reasons. They're well known for their experience, their skill, and that they've never broken a contract. Also, they have elephants. They also have Look elephants. <laughs> okay. I think that's we're done in King's Landing, so we cut to Winterfell, and uh, Littlefinger is in a room talking with Bran. One, one little histor- historical thing I'll just throw out that just occurred to me is that if we go back before market economies, there were cases of where individual people were wealthier than the countries that they lived in. Famously, Crassus, from which we get the term crass from, uh, was wealthier than the state of Rome when he was a Roman citizen. So I suppose under that logic of when before market economy allows trillions to just be created overnight— if you just had lots of gold and kept it, you could potentially be wealthy enough to be wealthier than your country. So I, I will acknowledge that point. Yeah, you act like that's like an ancient situation. Like by the time season eight gets here, like we're going to be like, yeah, you know, Jeff Bezos, kind of like Jeff Bezos. I got more wealthy than the United States. <laughs> we'll see. Go on. Okay, we go to Winterfell. And Littlefinger is in a room talking with Bran, and he gives Bran the dagger, the dagger that was referenced in the previously on at the start of the episode. And he, he I, I hate what they've done to Littlefinger. We've referenced this before, but you know, before Littlefinger was presented to us as this master of 
chess pieces of positioning of leveraging people and leveraging information to get what he wants to move up the ladder right and now he just kind of seems like a past his prime uncle trying to give advice to all the young kids at a picnic <laughs> because he's trying to give brand information about like oh well, here's what you know here's the dagger and, and he's trying to and brands having none of it of course but at this point he's like google brand like he's is you're not not a lot going on there and Brand finally has enough of him and just drops chaos is a ladder which is uh, a line that Littlefinger said, I think, multiple times. And yeah. uh, Littlefinger <laughs> like, he just got kicked in the gut. He's yeah. like, oh, my God, what am I dealing with here? And Mira Reed comes in. Mira, the real MVP, uh, mm. comes in, and she's kind of being a little sullen, and Bran susses out that uh, she's headed back to the Frog Giggers at Greywater Watch. And, you know, she's – you can tell that she's worked herself up to this scene. She's sacrificed so much for Bran and she's done so much to get him to where he is. And Vulcan Bran now is just like baffled. Like it was like nothing for him, which Mira rightfully kind of flips out about. And Google Bran just does his best. He's like, well, thank you. Like he just is seemingly now after the big data dump download from the three odd Raven he just seems incapable of interacting as a human in the way he used to before. And this is just more of an iteration about that. Cause if there's one person he should have been able to dig down deep and get a little emotion for, you would think it would be Mira F and Reed. Yeah. And I ask you here, do you feel that this scene is effectively tragic or do you think it is a, a kind of token ending to an otherwise important character? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I I feel like Mira deserved more than this. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I, I liked her. I liked her a lot in this show. I thought the actress was great. I thought the way they wrote her was great. I think that what she did for Bran was, was touching and heroic. And the fact it's basically just kind of like a like a sort of bad high school breakup. Yeah, I didn't like it. Yeah, I, I understand where they're coming from. I thought it was a good line of when he says, I remember what it felt like to be Brandon Stark, but I remember so much else now. And I, I understand where they're going with that, that if he literally has thousands of years of memory piled in his head, he's a different person. Memories, memories chart who we are. But she's done so much for him. She's done so much for the plot, and they've had such a great character in her. It feels real cheap to write her out in a two-minute scene. Yeah, agreed, but I think she's gone. I don't think we're going to see her next, no, uh, she's, next episode or next season. Yeah, I, they've effectively written her out. She's gigging frogs and sending poison spears at people. <laughs> yeah, well, when the Lannisters march north, I hope they send word to the uh, the people of the the people of the uh, oh balls. It where's she where's she from again? What's the swampery called? Um, Greywater Watch. That's the name of her castle. But what's that part of the neck? The people of the neck. I hope they get, they inform them that people are coming north because they don't usually do well when unexpected travelers try to go through. <laughs> An army is approaching. Your castle, send all of the frog meat that you have. <laughs> Fair trade. Okay. And then we go to, we cut to Arya, who has arrived at the gates of Winterfell. Well, she she first has a scene where she's looking at Winterfell and beautifully shot there. I like this scene. Mm -hmm. uh, and Arya arrives at the gates. <clears throat> and we've got two guards here who prove a point that I made to you uh, last episode, which is we've had a heavy turnover at Winterfell because these doofuses, uh, would never have been in the employ of Eddard Stark. There's no way these guys would have had a job at Winterfell if Eddard was still Lord. Can you imagine Roderick Cassell, Sir Muttonchops, tolerating these guys as part of his staff? 
I mean, come on. They let they let the person in and then just turn their back on them to discuss the issue. What the hell are you doing, guards? Yeah, but not before uh, Arya, Floyd Money Mayweather, Stark does this sort of, oh, you want to punch me? I am going to Matrix right out of that so quick. And the guy is so stupid because she does that move. You got to know, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. He still thinks he's in control. He's still telling her, you sit there, you do this, you do that. Anyway, she takes off and they're kind of left there holding the bag. Uh, and so they go to Sansa to explain that a fake Arya has arrived, which is kind of interesting because there is a fake Arya character in the book. But anyway, uh, explain the Arya, this fake Arya came and you know, she was talking nonsense, my lady. She was just, she referenced Cressel and Mr. Lewin, and, and then Sansa looks up. She knows this is actually Arya, and she says she knows where she is, and she's going off to meet her. Spencer, anything you want to talk about here? Um, no, I think you effectively summarized it. I think the meat of it comes in the, uh, this, what is it, this now, the third Stark reunion that Sansa's had in about a season and a half. Yeah, and this one um, down in the crypts, which I thought was pretty cool. So Sansa goes down in the crypts, and she sees Arya. Arya is standing in front of a god-awful statue of Eddard Stark. <laughs> Looks nothing like him at all. Yeah, and they, of course, have to mention this, too, just to uh, explain why the crafts department did, did a pretty crap job with it. But they do have a pretty touching reunion. They hug. I like the, I like the line that Arya hits her with. Uh, does this mean I have to call you Lady Sansa or what? No, Lady Stark. Yeah. Is yeah. that right? Lady Stark, right? She does. Yeah. And Sansa's like, yeah, yeah, you do. You kind of have to. Suck it. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of an alpha move there from Sansa. Mm. Um, and they stand there looking at the statue. They say that basically there was nobody to, you know, create the statue who remembered what he looks like. Yeah. Everyone, um, everyone who knew, say, his, everyone who knew his face is dead. What? Except them, which they point out. They, mm -hmm. they, they're still alive. And they both kind of admit to each other in passing that the story of how they got back to Winterfell is not a pleasant one. And that's very much true for both of the characters. Um, and I, I wonder if they'll, they're ever actually going to address the, the – give us an indication that the characters actually share what they went through. Um, because I don't think they do, at least not in this episode or probably the next but anyway, um, Sansa does make a line. It says a line here, Spencer. I want to bounce this off of you. She basically Please. says, like, well, John was excited to see me, but when he sees you, his heart will probably stop. Sansa, <laughs> did... Sansa. You know, I did not pick up on how insensitive that is. Just last season, his heart stopped. And you know this. You know he came back from the dead. Don't know. <laughs> she was really, like, ruling, Spencer. She's like, that's, that's like a sort of Freudian slip there. Yeah, I mean, and Sansa, we, on this show, we do not endorse such discrimination and prejudicial statements when it comes to zombified people. And we feel like that you need to post a public apology to address that community. Damn right. We're an inclusive, inclusive website. We're an inclusive podcast. We're inclusive people. Very much so. Okay. I don't have anything to say about this. I mean, they had to have them have a reunion. I thought they did it pretty well. I liked that it was in the crypts. That's really all I got. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I liked that the initial interaction between the two of them is pretty cold. Of Where Arya is a very much changed person, when Sansa reaches over to hug her, Arya does not return it. But when she starts talking about John, when she starts talking about we're still here, when she starts talking about that our story isn't done, Arya is then the one that reaches up and hugs her. Which feels like it's one of the few truly emotional connecting moments that we're, we've had out of, out of Arya, and uh, I appreciated seeing it. 
Right up there with hot pie. Right up there when she was stealing hot pies, ale and pie. <laughs> I would say the wolf. I think she had a closer connection with the wolf than any other human person so far this season. I was trying to come up. You know how you like have the celebrity like mashed together, like ScarJo, right? Yeah. Like you, you mash the two names together, and I, I tried. The, I tried it the first time, and like was so disgusted with myself. I quit the exercise. I went hot Aria. <laughs> <laughs> no, stop. We're done. Oh, oh, no, no, that's not good. <laughs> Come on, you got paya. <laughs> cut that, cut that. Okay. Uh, and then Sansa uh, says, hey, Bran's back. And Arya's like, whoa, that's great. And Sansa's like, eh. Not, <laughs> not so much. So they go to the Weirwood Tree uh, to meet Google Bran. Mm-hmm. And Bran, Arya's talking, and Bran basically cuts her off and, and, and gives an indication that he knows why Arya was going to King's Landing. And he knows about her list. At which point, Arya, who literally at the start of the season put on another person's face and murdered their entire family, she's at that level, gave a terrified look to Sansa about Bran. <laughs> you know, it's when the crazy gets close to home that it actually it actually affects you. When it's just part of your day-to-day routine, you know, you get used to it. But when it affects you know, a family member, that's when it gets personal. <laughs> I think she, her logic here is like, well, I can, I can put on a mask, but... I'm a luchador, Arya Stark, but oh my god, this guy knows everything. So they are clearly here intimidated by Bran. They don't know how to connect with him, but they do take him um, in his little wooden wheelchair away from the Weirwood, and they're kind of walking around the grounds of King's Landing, and that's kind of how it ends. Uh, the only thing I'll say about this uh, scene that I think is important is that Bran gives Arya the dagger that Littlefinger gave him. Mm-hmm. And they kind of protest, as you do when somebody tries to give you something that, that's really valuable. And he just says, it's wasted on a cripple. It's yeah. wasted on a cripple. And, and I've got a couple things about that. One, why do you think Littlefinger gave Bran the dagger in the first place? What was he trying to say by that? Uh, I think that he, in his sort of weird logic, thought that it would be touching in some way. To Bran, I don't see. That's the that's a problem I have a little thing right now. Like the stuff he's doing, I feel like it's not smart. It's not one step ahead. It's a little ham-handed, and he seems like he just kind of annoys everybody. Yeah, I I felt it an odd gift choice, but it is a valuable item, and I feel like in that conversation he even discusses that essentially Bran is Lord of Winterfell. That he's the oldest guy that's there. If he wants to take the title, he's in charge. So Littlefinger, to a degree, seems like he's hedging his bets. That He feels like he's got Sansa loyal to him, but here's a new potential claimant to the throne that he could manipulate or use, so he's trying to buy himself into his good grace. Yeah, and it's, again, him being a couple steps behind, because he doesn't know that Bran is now a search engine, yeah. and it, he's not going to be lord of anything. Yeah, Bran is kind of the anti-Littlefinger. That Littlefinger and all the schemers like him exist on having obscurity, exist on having constant plans in motion that no one else is aware of but them, that no one else sees the connections, that no one else sees the pieces in motion. Um, The fact that Bran can see through every single aspect of the entire history of his life at a whim could have probably led, should have probably led Littlefinger to just say, okay, it was a pleasure meeting you, I'm just going to go to the Vale, and I'll sit out from here. Never going to see you again. Bye. That probably would have been the smart move. 
And that's his weakness, right? He can't do that. He's always wanting upward mobility. I mean, but you're this, set, dude. Like, even if the others come, like, it's going to be damn tough for them to get to the Vale and get to you if you're up in the castle with uh, little Robin Aaron. Does he need to be front and center for why all this happens, though? Little Thringer, throughout most of his history, has been content to work through intermediaries, has been content to work through his equivalent of little birds on the world stage. Why does he need to be here personally with all the risk upon him? And that is my phone, so we're going to cut this. I think we're going to leave it in. You can leave the phone in. I will call her back. I say we leave it in. <laughs> her? Oh, expensive. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just the show trying to tell you that Littlefinger is overconfident. He, you know, he, he has too much faith in how he thinks. Anyway, he's too much faith in his his control of Sansa, right? Like uh, he thinks he's in more in control of Sansa in the situation than he really is. And I think the fact that he stays shows that, yeah, there's now a new threat. He probably doesn't know the extent of that threat. He knows that he knows at least one thing he said, and he looks like a creepy little Vulcan guy, but he doesn't know the extent. And he thinks he's still got his self uh, control of the situation. Spencer, anything you want to add? I just raised the question again. At what point do you feel like the show stopped having ideas of what to do with Littlefinger? Because uh, it's season and a half ago. It, it feels like that the moment that Littlefinger and Sansa arrived at the Vale together, and he pushed um, Cat's sister out the Moon Door, that they reached the end of his plotline in the books, and they had no further ideas, and that they've just been kind of dragging him along ever since. Agreed. All right, we go to Dragonstone, where Danny and Missendai are doing a little girl talk. And Danny said, man, you know, basically Danny says, we don't have any word from the Unsullied. If you remember from the last episode, the Unsullied took Casterly Rock, which had a shadow uh, Lannister force mm -hmm. holding it, and Euron's fleet showed up and burned all their boats. So they presumably are having to do a, a sort of long hike back across Westeros to get back to Dragonstone, King's Landing area. And, uh, when Danny says that basically they, they had no word from the Unsullied, Missende says, well, you know, Grey Worm's coming back. He has to. Danny kind of shoots her a look like, girl. And then Missende's like, we did a great many things. And I'll tell you, they did do a great many things, Spencer, but I can tell you one thing they didn't do. Yeah, but I think this is a good reminder for our listeners. Remember, Bill Clinton, sex can mean many things. Don't try to define it too narrowly. There are many options here. Ooh, hot take. Okay. God, build Clinton name check. Spencer, I never know where you're going. Okay. Anyway, John shows up and he says, you're gross. And Danny looks down and him and then looks back at Miss Sunday and smiles. Now, want to talk about this scene. The first time I watched it, I thought that Danny was still sort of caught up in the fact that Masande and Grey Worm, you know, did a great many things. Mm -hmm. On rewatches and on listening to other people talk about the episode, other folks seem to have had the interpretation that what Danny's doing here is looking at Missande like, ah, I got to go down here, this cute guy. Like they've already talked about the fact that John's a good looking guy and Danny kind of likes flirting with him. Spencer, you're a romantic expert. What do you think? I think it's an element of that. And I just didn't remember when I was watching it, but is this one of the first times John's actually referred to her as your grace? No, no, he did it in the, in the Dragonstone throne room. Okay. Then it, then it, it very much appears to be that, you know, we were talking about gossip about you, but you know, I'll have to get back to you. Got a cute guy down here. I got to associate with. Right, and and you know, look at the difference in just a couple of episodes. She walks down with him and goes into the cave with him, no guards. And you know, episode what one, two, I guess. Um, 
you know, you couldn't even, was it episode two when they met or three? Yeah, they, three. they wouldn't even let him approach the dais. That if he got the right. fact he, he made a step towards her, the Dothraki were ready to get on him. He couldn't even have twenty twenty vision when looking at her. That's that's how much they didn't trust him. <laughs> now she's just walking into a cave with him, all willy nilly. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they they go down to the cave, and you know, John leads her into this big room where there's a bunch of dragon glass, which Stannis told everybody two seasons ago. But anyway. Nobody cares about that. And she's amazed. She's like, oh, wow, this is a lot. He says, well, this is all we'll ever need. And I think, Spencer, that's the show telling you, we've checked this box. Now we have all the dragon class weapons we need. Yeah. We're not going to give you more detail. We're not doing the logistics of how it's mined, how it's transported. Mm-hmm. We've done this. We have all the weapons now. They have solved the problem. They now have the magic uh, f- de- defeat other button. Don't ask any more questions about this issue. And then they, uh, you know, Danny's amazed, and John says, well, there's something else I want to show you. And he he takes her down an even more tight area where they have to get closer and closer to each other. By themselves. John starts showing, yeah, by themselves, and John starts showing Danny some drawings on the cave. And I'm not going to go deep into these drawings, but I would suggest that anybody who's listening who's not a casual viewer of Game of Thrones, who reads the books, who really obsesses about it like Spencer and I do, go check out the podcast on the drawings in the cave from the Spoils of War that History of Westeros did because it's Hmm. great. It actually references the text of the the actual main books, but also all the supplemental material we have, and it really dives deep into what all these things mean because whoever, you know, crafted this scene in the show – was doing a serious shout out to the books here because a lot of the stuff maps pretty well. So go check out History of Westeros. That's uh, a really good episode. But the thrust of what these uh, drawings say is that you know the men and the children of the forest at some point had to team up to defeat their common enemy, which very clearly is looks like zombie undead White Walker type people. And I was with the scene up until the moment they showed the zombie undead White Walker people. Of where the scene, yeah. the scene going into that is great. It's a well, it's a well described scene, as you said. History Westeros does a wonderful job of describing how it charts the various history of the of the entire Westerosi continent and the children of the forest. Um, and you should listen to all their other material anyway because they're wonderful. But it's a beautiful yeah, shout scene. Out, shout out! It's a beautiful scene. I love the artwork. I love the style of them discovering like a, an, an ancient ancient cave paintings of those who come long before us. I love the John Williams esque music of them revealing everything slowly and depicting this majesty that was under their feet the entire time. And then we arrive at drawings that don't fit anything of the style of anything else that they've depicted and look so out of place. I think there's probably a, ch- a piece of chalk in Jon Snow's pocket from when he just drew these. Oh, I like that theory that he just kind of drew some dead men and we're like, you see, your grace, the threat is real. Oh, that, that would be that is way too clever for John. Yeah, like it, for real, he couldn't think of that. If it was Tyrion that was leading her down here, Tyrion totally would have drawn this because it's so on the nose. It's just funny. But yes, John, uh, Gormless John has no deception in his body whatsoever to pull that off. But from just an artistic standpoint. They look so different from everything else that we've depicted and seen in the caves, and the fact that they're all there in a line together with perfect lighting to show them just makes it way too easy for John to try to prove his case. So I felt what was a wonderful scene kind of got really ham-handed there at the end. Well, we know it wasn't Tyrion who did the drawings, not just because of uh, how high up they were, but because Tyrion was actually outside of the cave. I know. Sick burn. And... 
he's looking sheepish with uh, stone face varies, which I thought was kind of funny because Tyrion looks like he's, you know, he, he's the dog that just ate the homework and, and varies. <laughs> is just kind of like, well, it's another day, another dollar. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what happens here? Uh, and they explained that the Unzelly took Casterly Rock. And Danny's like, well, that's good. Why does everybody look so grim? And the the news that they unsullied had lost their ships and they had lost High Garden gets told off screen. Danny doesn't get told that immediately, but we do see her uh, straight up blowing a gasket, doing the pouty power walk move to seemingly nowhere. It looks like she's just walking. Like, <laughs> where's she going, Spencer? Uh, you know, she's having a bit of a tiff. She's had a very bad day. Her plans are not falling through, and she's kind of just storming off on an open beach while everybody else just follows behind her. But those Mad Queen bars are powering up, though, because she does throw back to Tyrion in his face that it's his family they're fighting. And then she suggests that maybe Tyrion's not as loyal uh, as she once thought he was. I don't think she believes this at all. I think she's just lashing out and angry. And when the Mad Queen gets angry, she goes for the jugular, and she just hits you where it hurts. Yep, and she very quickly and effectively hits what we've pointed out is possibly one of Tyrion's greatest weaknesses this season, and it's honestly conflicted loyalties. That he's wanting to win this war in a way that does not hurt those that he cares about, despite the fact that they are the enemies of the side he's chosen. So Danny then basically says, to hell with this, um, you know, she's starting to adopt a mantra that I have had, uh, pretty much this entire series, which is uh, always use your dragons. Always use your dragons. And she's like, I'm gonna, I'm getting on Drogon. I'm just gonna burn the Red Keep down. Mm-hmm. And you know, Tyrion's like, we discussed this. You know, <laughs> you're getting a little mad, Queenie here. And she turns to John, who so uncomfortable. And I feel so much uh, sympathy for him here because it's like. <laughs> First off, they tried to leave. Donald yeah. was like, you'll want to discuss this amongst yourself. And she's like, no, you stay. Uh, and then she looks at him and says, what should I do? I'm, I'm fighting a war and I'm losing. What should I do? Now, when I first watched this, I thought, in typical John fashion, he would have nothing of real value to say here. But he does. He does indeed, Spencer. He says, basically, you know, people thought dragons were gone, were extinct from this world. And you brought them back. You know, when people look at you, they see somebody who can do magical things, who can do things that all the shit rulers that they've ever had in Westeros can't do. And if you use those to melt cities or melt castles and burn down, burn down cities, then you're no better than the rest of them. You're just like everybody else. And Danny calms down. The Mad Queen bars go down a little bit. I think she takes this to heart a little bit. Spencer, what do you think? I, I very much feel like that she... This is another scene of where we're seeing that she really does trust John, that she really does respect John, that while she's casting off all of her top advisors, all of her most trusted people, she's turning to someone who's effectively an outsider to her and asking them that I'm at the lowest point I've been in since I arrived in this convent. Tell me a way out of this. And she trusts what he what she what he tells her. I think that she does too. That's that's how I um, that's how I interpreted that. I thought it was you know like you say yet another indication they're getting closer. I don't think she at all views his, him as the enemy anymore. I think she all but views him as an ally. Still a little perturbed. He calls himself king, but I think she's working through that. Uh, and then we cut to Winterfell, uh, a scene I liked very very much. Brienne and Podrick are training. Podrick, a very lucky man, and Arya shows up. And I like it because Brienne is really big boy and pod here hard like you know you know always do this always pick this up never do that and aria cuts her off which nominating line of the episode right now 
cuts her off and says, never fight someone like her in the first place, which <laughs> I got to tell you, Arya, that, that is, that is my philosophy in fighting. It, <laughs> Don't it, fight in the first place. It's it sound advice that Arya almost immediately decides not to follow. Well, she's the luchadora. I mean, she's, she can fight her, but uh pod has no business doing so. Uh, so, that's exactly what happens. Arya comes up and has to train with Brienne. And Brienne seems like, oh, I really don't want to do this. But Arya insists. And if you remember from a couple seasons ago, she still has, you know, she still has loyalty to Arya. She still swore that she would protect and take care of Arya. And Arya has requested to spar with her. So they do just that. And a couple questions here. So immediately it's apparent that Arya is not out of her league. She is. She's matching her uh, pretty well. Uh, I, I have a question for you, Spencer. Mm-hmm. How is Needle holding up in this fight? It's a teeny little sword. How how does she have the arm strength to absorb those big blows from Brienne's sword with such a little teeny sword and it not just completely rock back in her face? And, yeah, this is part of the reason I'm not as fond of this scene as you are. I felt like that we've not seen really anything going into this scene that Arya can hold her own in a stand-up fight. That the nature we've seen of Arya's training is that she's an assassin, that she's good at ambushing people, she's good at surprising people, that she can be scrappy when she needs to, under circumstances that she controls. We've never seen Arya just do a duel since she trained under Syria Pharrell in, like, season one. And now they're framing her as literally taking on... The, who the show is framed as one of the most accomplished and successful warriors alive. And I feel yeah, like she, that's yeah, just... she is. I feel like that's just a cheap way of saying, let's depict Arya as badass by having her fight and hold her own against somebody we've already established as badass. And then as well, you said... We saw her training with broomsticks. I mean, be fair. We did see her with broomsticks. We did see her with broomsticks get basically just beat with broomsticks, and that was the level of her training as an assassin. But we've already complained about how none of that makes any sense. Um, with respect to this fight, I'm going to do a soundbite for Scholar uh, Gladiatoria, who does wonderful reviews of Game of Thrones fights on YouTube. Uh, he does a wonderful uh, commentary about this scene from an expert perspective of how the fighting would work. Um, in terms shout out, of, shout out, shout out. Another shout out. In terms of breaking the blade, it's Castle Forge steel, so it's not going to break. And as how, for how she's fighting her, most of her little moves and parries are not straight up just blocking the blade and trying to use the force of her arm and the very light blade to hold it back, but it's directing it. It's pushing it aside, it's knocking it aside, and moving past it and slicing in. Uh, So I think that she's effectively using what would be a lighter blade to redirect rather than simply try to use force to hold back um, Brienne. What I don't really get, which I guess I can... Can Can we pause there for a second? Pause. I would just like to give you a gold medal for the episode for actually answering my question. Thank you, Spencer. Answer the question. I, yeah, and now, now I'm going to do what I do when I answer a question and talk for the next 10 minutes, so get on for the ride. Um, and what I would say that what I don't think makes a hell of a lot of sense, unless we just purely frame this as that she's just trying to, you know, mock or belittle Brienne or just spar and mess with her, is that she's using a tiny little small sword. That is not, if you even look at it, it's a square blade. It doesn't cut at all. It has no cutting edge. And she's just kind of like tapping Brienne, which Brienne rightly could have, if she wanted to, not block anything, not brush the blade aside, but just kind of walk through the harmless taps and just punch her. Which, given that Brienne's in full on armor, would be what Brienne would do. I feel like the show at times forgets that. Its characters are wearing armor, and that armor is used to block weapons. And that people yeah, fight differently I mean, based she, on wearing armor. 
I disagree there. I think that she's she knows she's trying to help Arya train. She's not actually trying to beat Arya up. Well, she's she's training. That's well, what she says she's going to do. She has no hostility well, against Arya. Then her training should be what the Hound told her back in season like three: is that a stop being a cocky little shit, and b armor decides fights. When you know Arya's talking with the Hound and say that you know I trained into the best sword in the world, Ciro Pharrell. Oh, and the Hound asks, well, who did he lose to? Marin Trant. Marin Trant? He's a piece of shit. Marin fucking Trant? <laughs> that the reason your greatest swordsman in the world lost was because he was fighting a guy in armor. That the technology and skills that you use matter. That simply just being the best in the room doesn't matter for shit when you're fighting on your opponent's terms. Which it seems like in this scene, Arya's just become such a cocky little assassin shit that she's forgotten about that advice entirely. Yeah, I mean, I still think that Brienne is a little taken aback here. She doesn't quite know how to play this, so she's just sparring with him as yeah. she went. Yeah, and then she, of course she's not going to punch Arya in the face. That's not going to happen, she, especially with Sansa watching. She briefly um, she briefly ponders the idea of kicking in her breastbone. Yeah, I mean, she does get a little irritated. One thing that I, I we can move on from this, this scene here in a second, but one of the things that I didn't quite understand, was Brienne using her real sword? Because uh, if so, she was taking full swipes at Arya's head, that if Arya had been half a second late, she'd have been decapitated in Winterfell. Uh, notably not, and it's a good deal, of, it's a good showing of realism for the show, that both she and Pod are using blades that if you look at them in close up, are rounded tops. These are very much dull training blades that they're intentionally using to not hurt each other. The fact that Arya's actually using a sharpened blade for this is kind of a dick move. She says, don't worry, I won't cut you. <laughs> and she doesn't, and, she, you know, she realistically couldn't through Brienne's armor anyway, except at the end when she goes after the one weakness in Brienne's ensemble, and that is the show's hatred of all things helmet-related. Okay, all right, that gets us to the finale of the scene. Spencer, on the card, score it. Who wins this battle, Arya or Brienne? Uh, in terms of just a, pu a pure spar, the show is framing it as if it's a draw, as if it's a neutral affair and they're both impressed with each other's abilities. In terms of if this was a stand-up fight, as you said, Brienne's going easy because she doesn't want to kill somebody that she views as her ward. So I think in fairness from what we've seen of their abilities and what they're using, if Brienne actually puts a helmet on, there's no way she loses this fight if it actually is an, out an outright fight. But as depicted, it's a neutral draw that they just both gain more respect for each other because of it. Agreed. Uh, I agree. I've got a tie. It would go to extra innings for me. Okay. <laughs> Going to Dragonstone. Uh, John and Davos are hiking down this uh, epic stairway and uh, have a great, I mean, Davos right here is, is making a play for best line of the episode that is not quite <laughs> on the Lady Olena level, but he is really getting there because he starts right out, you know, what do you think of her? Who? I believe you know who I speak. She's got a good heart. So when you're staring at a good heart. <laughs> uh, that's a great line. Old Davos. And if you think that's the, that's the peak of that sequence, it is certainly not. Because then Davos, who is low-key doing some old man flirting with Missandei uh, in the last couple episodes, just looks at her and says, speaking of good hearts, mm -hmm. Sunday? No. <laughs> so right, right off the I'll tell you people what Davos is saying. Davos is saying, oh, yeah, she's got good boobs, too. Yeah, that's a, it's a, we, we've seen Davos hit on Missende a couple times, and I just love his transition there. Davos, the old player, you know, gotta love him. Speaking of good hearts, yeah, and then he introduces John as King John. No, King Snow. No, that's not right. And John says it doesn't matter, which I just 
every time this comes up that John doesn't even know what his king name is just makes me so happy. Uh, it's so it's so John. But then anyway, uh, Masende got one such John a question. Up, 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 sir. Sir, Guy of Stanislav are not going to talk about the greatest line in the entire episode. Uh, oh yeah, fewer. Thank you. Stanislav. This is the crowd service stuff, though, that you don't like. Where I'm down with this one. He says less, and Davos corrects him and says fewer, which is a callback to Stannis, who uh, just a grammar Nazi, uh, known throughout Westeros as a real grammar stickler. Mm-hmm. Uh, pause one second. Uh, there's a, a scene earlier on in the show um, of when uh, Danny and John are talking in the crypts, and she asks him to bend the knee again. And she says a line, isn't their survival more important than your pride? Um, I could save that for book nerd bitching, but that's a direct quote of the same line that John tells Mance Raider back in like season three. Yeah. And also I think John leaves on the table the, the, the comeback, which is, well, isn't their lives more important than your ambition? Like, I mean, same, she wasn't on the other foot for you, right? Like same, same thing. Like you, you're being proud because of your ambition and you're, you're risking their life as well. And these are the people that you want to rule. You want to be your subject. So, okay. Uh, all right. I like that. I like the, the call back there to an earlier scene. Missende mm-hmm. is, uh, has a question for John. She's a little confused by the concept of a bastard. John says, well, it means that my father and mother weren't married. And Davos, always wanting to know more about Missende, says, is that different <laughs> enough? And Missende says that there's basically no marriage in, in North. So, um, the idea of being a bastard really doesn't exist. And they continue to talk, and, and John here is picking at a scab that I would if I was him, which is, okay, you were a slave, then she freed you, but now you work for her full-time. So are you still a slave, or are you actually free? And he actually puts it to her in a good way. He says, if you wanted, you told her you wanted to leave tomorrow, what would you do? She says, you know, uh, she would give me a, a ship and, and wish me good fortune. He says, you believe that? She says, I know it. And then she launches into a really powerful monologue about her um, devotion and the devotion of everybody who came from Essos with her to Danny. And it's not, as Miss Andy puts it, because she's the daughter of a king they never knew. It's because she helps people. She's 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 helped all of us, and we believe in her. She's the king that we chose. Davos yet again, potential line of the episode. Looks at John. Yep. Mind if I switch sides? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I gotta love Davos. Oh yeah, he's a he's a serious MVP candidate this episode. This episode, I really liked it. Um, okay, anything you want to discuss there before we go to the next sequence on Dragonstone? Uh. Oh, right. I forgot about the next sequence on, Dra- on Dragonstone. No, I'm fine with discussing how John and Theon run into each other again. So John looks and he goes, is that a Greyjoy ship? But we've seen the Euron sigil. It's a little bit different. It's gold and black as opposed to, I think, red and black. And it's not one of Euron's ships. And it's only one ship, so that wouldn't make sense for it to be Euron anyway. And we quickly see that it's Theon who was coming aboard with one of Yara's remaining uh, surviving ships from the battle with Euron. And John immediately walks up, <laughs> does the old big boy snatch by the collar move, which I, I like that move. That's a, that's a real, uh, you know, 
I'm I'm the big brother here. Yeah, you know, you settle down. I'm snatching you by the collar. And Theon, who knows John's not going to be particularly excited about seeing him, immediately brings up like the one thing that he's done good. He goes, hey, what about Sansa? Like, <laughs> good. By the way, I did this one good thing. Good start, Theon. Good start. Frame the issue before the discussion occurs. Very effective negotiating tactic. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, John says, you know, what you did for her is the only reason I'm not killing you. And I believed him. I, I think John would have gone full Ramsey Bolton and just beat his head in. Um, but he didn't because Theon did help John. And Theon updates everybody about the attack. And he says that Euron has Yara and he's there to get Danny's help in getting Yara back. John explains that the queen is gone. Smash cut back to now it looks like we're near Blackwater Rush because we're right outside of King's Landing, uh, King's Landing gates, right? And, and I feel like we should pause here just because at this point there has been the first 70% of this episode, and then what comes after is its own thing entirely. What? Just to review where we've been so far, what have you thought of the first 70, 80% of this episode? Lukewarm. Yeah. Give it a B minus. Yeah, I, I, I honestly felt it was pretty mediocre. I, I didn't find much inspiring. I didn't find much to be of interest. It felt like everybody was just kind of going through the paces. When I was watching it live, I really felt like, Okay, this seems like a lot of setup for something. What's about to occur? And then something occurred. Indeed, it does. So we're uh, back at but, outside of the gates of King's Landing. Go ahead, Spencer. Yeah, just finish up. Muttering. One thing that we just didn't talk about that I liked is that um, while Arya and Brienne are having that duel with each other, uh, Littlefinger and Sansa are looking on. And I feel like the thoughts that were going through Sansa's head throughout many of the scenes that she's had with both Bran and Arya now is that. Okay, we all had trauma. We all went through a, a uh, hero's journey. Why did everybody get special powers and abilities, and I didn't? Why, why did I make yeah. it? Why did I make it through this forging process and came out of it with good administrative sense? Couldn't I have gotten, you know, mad assassin or prophetic abilities from this hell I've been through? She is really the Batman of Westeros. No, no <laughs> superpower. It, it's a shame, you know. She's got one one half sibling. She thinks that is, you know. Got massive, um, we're coming coming back from the dead ability. Another one that can assume the role of anyone that she wants, be they old men or, you know, Kingsguard and kill them. And then another one who can see through literally the abyss of time. And she's good at directing people to bring food to Winterfell. But, you know, be happy of your abilities. Putting leather on the breastplates, too. I mean, don't, don't diminish her resume. I, I'm selling her short. It's true. All right. We're back at outside the, the gate. Uh, we're not back. We're at the uh, gates of King's Landing, and Randall Tarley walks up to Jamie, who is there with Bronn, and says that they're basically they're, they're lagging behind. That there's a, they're a part of their forces that if the if the head was attacked, they wouldn't be able to reinforce. I believe is what he's trying to say. Yep. Jamie says, "Yeah, we are stretched thin," and Randall Tarley. Um, Little shout out here because he, he's proven right. He asked for permission to flog the stragglers uh, to get everybody closer together, and Jamie gives him a look like he's, uh, like, you know, a sycophant or a psycho, and he's just like, uh, yeah, why don't we just like ask them first? Because they just did fight, <laughs> fight the battle for us. I, I love the expression on Randall's Charlie's face. I've never seen somebody so disappointed to not be able to flog somebody today. He looks so annoyed that oh, fine, okay, we're using these pussy tactics. Ooh, working blue again. But yeah, I think the reason that he's doing that, though, is that he knows that it's it should happen from a military perspective. Like, yeah. Jamie's being soft, but that puts them in a weaker military position, which comes a bit later. 
And, and, and he acknowledges that we are strung out. We are in a crap position. If anyone actually comes upon us right now, we are going to suffer for it. Jamie and most of the rest of the command appear just almost suicidally overconfident. They've got no, we see no scouts. We see no outriders. We see no flanking forces. They're marching in a line that stretches for miles with no knowledge of what could be on the sides of it. And Randall Tarr was the only one going, okay, if we're going to do this, we really got to hurry up. But they have accomplished the only objective they actually set out for. Because as Randall Tarley says, the gold has arrived in King's Landing. Effectively, yes, they did get to go through the gates, yes. Effectively, a significant portion of the Lannister forces and what they would actually went out to get has reached its objective. From that perspective, Cersei has won today. All that can occur from hereafter is a kick in the nose to make it feel not as good. Wow. Uh... I know you. I know you're hot take guy. I know that's who you are. But to say that what is about to happen is simply a kick in the nose, uh, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree, Senator. I, I respect your view, but I'm going to defend it down the way. Oh my gosh, man! We're at that point of the episode, everybody, where Spencer just starts going all full Skip Bayless on everybody. I take time right. to warm up. And I, Bron and Jamie come upon Rickon. Nope, Dickon. He, he, he. I love that Bron just comes uh, up here. Greatest line of the episode, I think. It's just <laughs> a. It's 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 again Jamie doing a power move of making him say his name and getting getting his name wrong and making him say it. And then Bron's reaction is so delightful in middle school. Yeah, he's just laughing because his name is literally Dickon, which is pretty <laughs> funny objectively. But I'd like to point out here that Rickon, no, Dickon is swole. He has been doing the Westerosi CrossFit. Oh boy, is jacked. His armor is designed to accommodate his biceps that are, I think, wider than his hips. Ooh, you got that hourglass. He's a big boy. Anyway, they ask uh, Rickon no Dickon how the battle at Highgarden went, and he originally says it was glorious, and they kind of look around like, look, you're, you're sort no, of no one's here. Not here. <laughs> Yeah, and and he says, uh, well, you know, it smelled more than I thought it would. And Bron, great line, coming, great through, line, coming through. Potential best line of the episode. Men shit themselves when they die. Didn't they teach you that in fancy lad school? Oh, I love that line. <laughs> I've missed Bron so much. Uh, he, every scene that he is in, he steals it. He has such wonderful lines. He's such great irreverence to everybody else. In most scenes, Bron is in. Everybody else is treating it as a serious moment. Bronn cannot be arsed to have that level of respect for either the moment or anyone that's in the moment with him. So a couple things I like about that line. One is the line, didn't they teach you that in fancy lad school, which is hilarious. But the part that you jumped in on was when he actually ended it by saying, I learned it when I was five, which Jamie shot him a look like, God, you poor guy. Yeah. Wow. That's terrible. And, and I think we've heard from Bronn before during a drinking game. Didn't he like, kill his first person when he was like seven? Yeah, so, yeah, and I, totes believe it. I mean, totes. Bron, Bron had a rough upbringing. You know, it, 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 we, we don't know the full story of Bron, but it would be a fascinating side story if, Game of, if the Game of Thrones people ever want to do it. Yeah, you know, Martin will write that before wins a winner. Oh, don't All give right. him ideas. Uh, and then uh, Bron hears something in the distance. Yeah, I like that he's the first person to hear it. I think yeah. that's consistent with his character. Then Jamie does immediately, and... And this is before I could, and I turned it up pretty loud. I could hear it as a viewer. So you right now have Bron and Jamie hearing something that the viewer is not and is hearing, but they begin to get the Lannister forces in formation. J- Jamie starts yelling, spears and shields, spears and shields. Everybody needs to get in the line, get in formation. Something's coming. 
And I'm impressed. I mean, they've said before how well-trained and capable the Lannister forces are. But they very quickly assemble to counteract whatever's coming over the hill. It's just at this point, even a well-trained force could not be prepared for the literal horde that is approaching them. Yeah, I felt like there wasn't as many Lannister soldiers as I would expect. It, was, it didn't seem like that many soldiers that were actually there to... To, to, to form up and try to create a barrier around Jamie. Which which again cuts to the point I was making earlier that the gold was what they no, were guarding. No, Randall Randall Tarley made it earlier. Uh, so I, Randall Tarley made it earlier and I reiterated earlier, but the gold was what they were guarding. The gold was their objective here. That was what they were trying to defend. A significant portion of the Lannister forces probably were with the gold when it arrived in King's Landing. In many ways we're just seeing the we're seeing the trail the uh, stragglers rather than the bulk, potentially the bulk of their army. Yeah, maybe. But I still, I, I, I don't want to dismiss losing an entire army. Like, I th- Cersei had the bulk of the Lannister army that was on this mission to go to Highgarden to bring the gold back. Yes, bringing the gold back was the primary objective. Also, keeping an army, kind of important. But anyway, warm up. <laughs> Look out over the distance. And, man, I gotta tell you, Spencer, this Matt Shackman... For having directed a barrel load of Always Sunny in Philadelphia lines, sure does shoot a gorgeous scene here because you start to see little specks over a hilltop and you hear that, you hear, oh my God, this like sort of loud, tribal screaming, and it gets louder and louder. And up over the top, you see more and more of Dothraki soldiers. They're on horses and they're coming down this hill toward the Lannisters. Yeah, and I, I call this his Zulu shot because have you ever seen you ever seen the movie Zulu before? If not, we're gonna watch it as part of this show some point four or five years in the future. But th- that shot okay, of the, that's that's episode one, Mangum Talk movies. <laughs> but that shot of the army approaching and cresting the ridge is classically done, and seeing them just pour over a tidal wave of humanity in just suicidal attack pattern. It, the chills have already started for me. And then as it cuts to the Lannisters, as they are shaking, as they are scared, and Bronn just turns to Jamie and says, you need to leave now. There is not, you, you're the general, you're not, a, you're not an infantryman, you can serve no use here, we're all going to die. I like the line he gives with me, he says, this fuckers are about to swamp us. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, Jamie's, Jamie thinks that they can hold, and it's possible, they could, they're a well-trained, disciplined infantry group. It's possible they could hold against light cavalry that's just charging them like this. Except, apparently, uh, Danny decided to bring a modern fighter jet to a medieval battle. Because a freaking dragon flies over the horde. Yeah, and it's funny. Like, Yeah, you hear the, 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 the Drogon screech. And Jamie looks up, and he's just like, what in the high hell? And... I mean, they do shoot this well that there's a shock value. Nobody, nobody's ever seen this before. They don't know yeah. what the hell that is. But I, I think that the, the – I'm not sure they would have held the Dothraki anyway because the way that they depict these Dothraki uh, you know, blood riders, I mean, these guys are hell. Um, they, they do a couple things that I think are really, really amazing. One is they run their – they a couple uh, – a good number of them run in with their horses and then actually leap off their horses over the line. Yeah to break the line. And then they have guys who are up on some sort of harness and are archers on a horse going up to them. I mean, serious badass scenes here. 
And it is incredible. This is really the first time we've ever seen the Dothraki actually demonstrate their abilities. We've heard about them before. We've seen the aftermath of them. But this is seeing why the world is afraid of the Dothraki. That they're not just savages. They are a capable and deadly force. That... I, it, it does... De- I, I agree. that I think the Lannisters would have been overwhelmed. They would have been swamped. They're too heavily outnumbered. But... The only time we know historically the Dothraki ever lost to a well to a force was against a well-drilled force of infantry in spear wall formation. That's the only time historically we've known they've ever lost. So yeah, do I, I think it's like they've learned from that. I think the Lannisters would have lost. I think they're too heavily outnumbered. We even see the Dothraki starting to get through their formation as the battle's going on. But what makes it impossible for them to stand a chance, what makes it impossible for them to like form square or do a tighter formation to hold them off, is one of the more impressive scenes they've ever filmed of just a pillar, like it's, it's like God's finger of fire dragging across the ground as the, uh, as Drogon just starts painting lines of death through the Lannister formation. And I, I, if I'm, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think I looked it up that the first scene of him just carving through the Lannister line is the single most people on fire ever depicted in a film scene. Yes. Yep, they set a world record. They put the most people on fire in one scene ever. And it it, it is I it, it, again through I spent I was I was having a hard time writing down notes to talk about this scene because I was again having already seen it still in awe of what they're accomplishing. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um, I you know I you know Drogon starts to 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 burn not just the Lannister line, but Danny smartly directs Drogon to start going after uh, a lot of the food and the, and the, it, the, uh, it, the, the carts that they have taken from the reach. Is that smart? I mean, she just said back when she was on Dragonstone that, you know, they've defeated them and they've taken all the food of the reach. In many ways, the food is more valuable than gold because she's apparently in a pretty lousy supply situation in terms of her ability to feed her army. And here, if she knows it's food, is she being really dumb in terms of destroying it like this? I think it's a lot to ask to think that that, that could that could hold up during the battle. But I think she's just going for the jugular here. She's saying, look, I'm going to kill your army and kill uh, and destroy any chance you have of having provisions within King's Landing. I think she's just going for the jugular here. I also don't think she was particularly – I mean, just call back the last episode. I don't think she was really all that worried um, about not, – not last episode, but – previous scene i don't think she's yeah. all that worried about finding food i mean she's got a damn dragon she'll just go somewhere and take food um but uh, here's something i want to point out uh it wouldn't be an episode of the got questions podcast without me making an nba reference so Please. we see here that uh that um that Tyrion actually comes with the bat the the, the the soldiers he's there to witness the battle so he presumably he was a part of discussions leading up to the battle now here's how i see this going I see Jamie going to her Dothraki uh, leaders or her, her blood riders and saying, look, we're actually going to do this. We're going to battle. We're going here. Ship's going to take you. Then you're getting off and you're going to attack the Lannister forces. And they went, okay. And then Tyrion walked up and said, well, what do you know about the Lannisters? Now, here's the parallel. Spencer, I, I believe you've heard of the Dream Team, correct? I have heard of the Dream Team. You mean the, uh, the basketball team from the NBA that played at the Olympics? Yes, in 1992. Uh-huh. It was the first time that professional athletes from the United States were allowed to participate in the Olympics. And they put together the best team of all time. 
No one's questioned that. That's not a hot take. That's just fact. Best team of all time they put together. And they showed up there and just started cutting through teams. And at one point, Sir Charles Barkley, one of the best uh, sports personalities of all time, is being asked, okay, your next uh, your next game is against Angola. What do you know about Angola and the power forward you'll be matching up against? And he says, quote, I don't know anything about Angola, but Angola in trouble. <laughs> and this is how I envision the Dothraki talking to Tyrion. Yeah. I don't know anything about the Lannisters, but the Lannisters in trouble. Oh, yeah. And as you say, they depict the Dothraki finally going hog wild in a chance we've never seen on the show, and they are carving through the now disorganized and retreating Lannisters like it's nobody's business. That when he says, your men don't know how to fight, from their perspective sitting on that hill, the Lannisters are already being defeated and running, and the Dothraki are just having a hog wild time among them. I don't know nothing about the Lannisters, but the Lannisters in trouble. And indeed they were. Tyrion watches as the Lannister army is carved up, both from uh, Drogon's fire and then also just the Dothraki being complete badasses. Uh, one of the, the sort of body men there who were supposedly there, I, I would presume, to, to protect Tyrion, does say to him in Dothraki, your people can't fight. Tyrion can't speak Dothraki, can he? Uh, he seems to. I don't. I don't know if he's just flinching at the scene he's depicting or flinching at the line. Uh, we've never seen that he speaks Dothraki. He's clever enough and quick enough that, to think that maybe he's started learning some because of the fact that they're the bulk of Danny's forces now. But we've never seen anything to suggest he speaks Dothraki. Yeah, I don't know. I thought that was weird because it does seem like he he heard him. But anyway, I, I, look, no fan of the Lannisters. Uh, I'm wearing the Stannis shirt. I don't like the Lannisters, but it, the carnage was a little tough to watch. The it, people being turned to ash, the people melting in their own armor. Yeah. It's pretty brutal. It, only Danny could make me feel bad for the Lannisters at this point, but I I was really sympathizing for them for most of the scene. It wasn't fair. It's like Danny not only has an army of 60,000 trained uh, trained horsemen to go that would be bad enough as is, she also has the equivalent of like an A-10 warthog providing ground attack support. It's not fair, and many of the scenes they depict are so wonderful for showing the just straight-up horrors of war. They're showing people that are melting their armor. They're showing an entire division of troops that are just reduced to standing ash. Some of the shots they're drawing from are just straight Hiroshima, Nagasaki levels of terror. I mean, I feel like at a certain point that Danny's probably thinking to herself as she's flying over this formation is that or probably Drogon's thinking, I have become Drogon the destroyer of worlds. I mean, this is straight Oppenheimer fear for what this kind of weapon could accomplish in the world. Yeah, it's brutal. Um, and they, they're they routing the Lannisters, and then Jaime um, finally kind of snaps too and, and tells Bronn, hey, well, we got Kyber and Scorpion. Go, go get that. And Bronn's like, I'm not doing it. And Jamie's like, well, I got one hand. Oh, yeah, good point. All right. Um, the rare good point. So then Bronn goes over to get to the scorpion. But then they have a scene which they've done before, and this gets to your point, Spencer, about them liking to show the true horrors of war and how in war and in a battle like this, everything is so random and yeah. you, you, they give you a POV of a character who's just sort of stumbling about narrowly missing death and they did this with john in the battle of the bastards and i think it's the similar scene they do here with braun is he's just trying to make it over to this um to, to the kyber and scorpion and it's wonderfully done it's just pure unadulterated chaos of where we have no we have no more idea than the character does about what's going on around him about just the sheer maelstrom that he's in the middle of 
All you're trying to do at this point is surviving it. He at one point even dra- pulls a sword out of a guy who's pinned to a wall to kill a guy that's trying to kill him. That The only reason uh, that uh, Bronn is surviving is from sheer scrappiness, that he has no other way of knowing what's, what's about to confront him. Yeah, and one of the things that reinforced to me that they stood no chance is Braun is one of the better, you know, 1v1, you know, fighters that we've seen in the series. Mm-hmm. And just a random Dothraki blood rider basically gets the best of him. Do, um, does he? Uh, I, I don't think he has any weapons, though, at this point. I mean, he threw his dagger at the guy, and the, the guy kind of deflected it. And then I think he loses his sword as he's, as he's running through the ground. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think what I'm talking about is the fact that, you know, in if, he, if Braun is fighting the people we've typically seen him fought, the dagger throw would have done it. But the Dothraki go up, they go ham, and he cuts the, cuts the leg off his horse, yeah. which throws Braun down. Braun, look, okay, I, I see you're doing a hot take here, but you have to admit that one of the better 1v1 fighters is pushed to the edge by a random somebody. Yes, a random somebody on horseback. If I challenge you to the thing that you are best at, the fact that you're able to beat me at it doesn't necessarily mean that you're overall better than I am. Braun in a stand-up fight? Who knows? But I agree. They are framing this uh, that Braun is in legitimate threat, that he's being actively pursued. But luckily, Braun being Braun, finds another weapon. And the shot... Yes, he finds a scorpion. And the shot of him using it in a true anti-personnel capacity is great. Yeah, so he pins the the blood rider who um, loses ten uh, nine on the cards. There, he does lose, but it, it was a, it was it was a you're, you're gonna score amount of punches thrown. You're gonna score it that close with just a complete TKO knockout there at the end. You're gonna score it that close. Yeah, Spencer, you don't know anything about boxing. Be quiet. It's ten nine. You you just because you knock somebody out doesn't mean you win more. You, you it's about how many punches you throw. How many. Times you hit the person in the head. Come on, Spencer. He threw Watch more sports. He threw two punches, couldn't get anywhere near the guy, and then got entirely KO'd by the first hit. That's not a close scored fight. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know where what scene you watched here, but you seem to think that Braun was in way more control than he really was. He kind of stumbled about. He by the skin of his teeth was able to get to the scorpion. He does pin the guy up against. Um, you know, the, some, I guess another cart, uh, my boxing analogy was really good. And then <laughs> Braun starts to take aim. Uh, he, we're going to see, uh, does this scorpion actually, uh, does it actually something that could, that could actually hurt the dragons. And so he winds it up and he fires the first shot, which actually gets pretty close to Danny. Um, which I thought was interesting. And Tyrion seemed to notice it. And then Danny oh, yeah. looks down. She can't really tell where it came from. He lines it up again. He calls Drogon a big fucker, uh, fires it off, hits Drogon in the wing. Drogon goes into a, a, a spiral. Spencer, anything you want to say here? At, at what point do we decide that Bronn deserves all the castles that he ever wants forever? Because it seems like a large portion of the Lannister successes in any big moment have been due to Bronn. That we call him Bronn of the Blackwater because he essentially won the Battle of Blackwater Bay. Now he's essentially put a blade into the side of the one great weapon that his enemy has. Bronn's incredible, and he deserves everything that he ever wants forever. Bronn won the Battle of Blackwater Bay? He, he shot one arrow. He shot one arrow that destroyed like half of Stannis' army, and then just calmly walked up and started murking guys with a Kukri blade. So, yeah, Bronn deserves credit. Yeah, yeah, I would say he deserves some credit, but I don't think he essentially won the Battle of Blackwater Bay. But we'll get to that when we do the Season 2 rewatch. I mean, you can duke it out, and I'll win 10-9 to 9 on the cards, just like Braun did against that guy. You taught me, okay. sir. <laughs> I'm dancing. Dancing, Spencer. Mm. Okay, 
so Drogon goes into a, a spiral, and I I didn't know what the hell was going to happen here. I was really riveted, and he's able to kind of course correct and get up just over um, just over the ground, and he, he sees Bronn with the scorpion, and he lights him up. And I really thought here, Spencer, you tell me what you think. You are a big Bronn fan. I thought they missed a chance to kill Bronn off here. I thought it would have been it would have made a lot of sense for him to be burned up right then. There are two characters that could have died in this show in this particular episode within about five minutes of each other that would have been very interesting if the show had been willing to pull the to, to not pull those punches, and Bronn is definitely one of them. Yeah, and getting to the second one, uh, Danny then lands Drogon, and Drogon at this point is like the like the seven forty seven version of a cat that got petted one too many times, <laughs> and he's yeah. just smashing stuff with his tail and just hitting everything. He's just, just yeah. really lashing out, yeah. not happy. I love that he that w- one of the things that he hits is the remaining of the scorpion, and I can just picture him saying in his head, "I don't know what this is, but fuck it in particular, it hurts." Yeah, he was not pleased. Uh, so Danny gets out and she's trying to pull the spear out of him, um, having a tough time because obviously it's like a you know spear head, so it's lodged in there. Yeah. And then we get to, I, I just love this scene. I, I, I just love it. One of the uh, greatest this, scenes. I go into complete nerd geek fandom, and I just love this scene. It, it's one of the most beautiful, incredible, most character perfect scenes they've ever filmed. I we could go on for an entire hour about just how great this scene is right here. All right, but we will spare the listeners, and we won't do that. Oh, but come Tyrion on. Is looking at Jamie, and he seems to know what Jamie's thinking, and he just says, run away, run away, you fool, run away, and he's yeah. ta- muttering to himself. But that's and, not that's not Jamie. Jamie is... And he, he, yeah, he's like every Oklahoma City fan, wa- fan watching Russell Westbrook, like, just pass, just pass the ball, pass the ball, you <laughs> damn fool, pass the ball. No, that's not his constitution. That's not Jamie Lannister's constitution, everybody. Jamie Lannister's picking up a spear. He's going after the queen. He's going full St. George and the Dragon here, and it's just glorious. Because this is so Jamie. This is Jamie. He has the opportunity to win the war in one stroke. He has the opportunity to accomplish the most knightly ideal ever. He's got a spear, there is a dragon, and he is going to kill it regardless of the risk to himself or anything else. And it's just magical how well it's filmed, the music of it. The sheer determination in Jamie's face is he knows he's probably going to die doing this, but he is so honor duty bound that he's going to try it anyway. Yeah, one slight little tweak there from your from, and I like the excitement, Spencer. Don't Please. let this kill the enthusiasm. It's Keep too it late. There. It's too I late. I think he's trying to kill Danny there. I think I don't think he's going after the dragon. I think he's trying to put a spear in Danny, and he knows the dragon's going to get him. The problem is, dragons aren't stupid. This has been established. He knows what Jamie's doing, so he turns his head. Coxit looks at Jamie in the moment. If you paused it, I would have told you Jamie Lannister is dead. The show really did a one-two on me, and Braun comes out of you and uh, tackles him into the water. Yeah, and I, I agree. I think he was targeting Danny. I misspoke when I said that. And um, do you think the show pulled a punch when it didn't kill Jamie here? Yes. I, mean, I, I thought it would be almost a poetic end to his character. I thought it would provide a real effective character drama for both Cersei and for Tyrion in the coming episodes. It seemed like this was a very interesting way of ending him. I mean, they would sing stories and songs. This would be the recognition that Jamie had always kind of wanted and hoped for from people. 100% agree, Spencer. First time this episode, me and you actually agree 100% on something. I, I, I don't agree. I think he should have died here. I think that what they've done is they've locked in these these you know star actors for the full series, and so this season they didn't really get knock any of the main ones off. 
Yeah. I do anticipate that's going to change next season. But I did think this would have been a great, um, great ending for for Jamie. Now, Spencer, I want to tell you a take that I had during this. Something I was feeling down in my bones, and you tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, does this make me uh, a turncoat? Does it make me crazy, or am I right on? All right. Okay. Turncoat crazy, or I'm right. When Jamie is running toward Danny with that spear. 49% of me wanted him to hit, to catch her and yeah. to actually stab her and kill her. I'd put it over 50 for me. I mean, it, it, it is just so... It's almost such a romantic ideal scene of someone with just that suicidal determination to sacrifice everything to accomplish what they are. I mean, we've talked before about Star Wars, about some of the scenes we often see where very Star Wars characters being willing to commit suicide to accomplish their goal. And... To see Jamie there, finally fulfilling every nightly dream that he's ever wished, with seeing the massive, truly devastating and outright unfair destruction that Danny's inflicted this episode on scared individuals who are fighting for a war that they're not responsible for and don't believe in. In this moment, yeah, I kind of wanted Jamie to do it. I thought it would have been, I thought it would have made the scene even more incredible. Yeah, yeah, for like, for. 25 seconds I was hashtag Team Lannister. It didn't last long, but I, for a little while, man, I was like, get her! Oh, only Danny and her dragons can make us briefly sympathize and want the Lannisters to win. Didn't think that was going to happen until this episode. But just the, the scale of what... The, I can... I mean, there's, a, there's a, a book nerd theory we can discuss at some point about the uh, Meister conspiracy, about how the Meisters have been actively working to get rid of dragons and magic from the world. Having watched what they're capable of, Maybe that's not the worst thing, really. They're just not fair. Theory alert. Theory alert. Theory yeah. alert. I like that, Spencer. Nice drop. I try. Tease the audience. Tease it. We'll talk about it later. Okay. We're done with the recap. Uh, Spencer, I'm going to tell you, loved this episode. Wasn't crazy about the beginning, but I think the the um, the, the field of fire, too, let's just call it that from now on, executive decision. Yeah. Uh, was so good. One of the best battle sequences, if not the best battle sequence they have ever done. Now, granted, they have a much bigger budget to do this one than they had in, say, season two with a Blackwater battle, but they used their money well, and it was gorgeous. It was absolutely theater quality, major motion picture quality. Didn't look like television, traditional television to me. Loved it, 100%. I give this episode a B+. Man, I this episode truly knocked my socks off with respect to this final battle. As I said, I wasn't really into pretty much everything leading up to it. I thought it was kind of junior level in terms of its quality of the writing and what it was depicting. But this scene right here, it just shows such complete confidence in what they're capable of that they may not have the they may not have the cleanest dialogue anymore. They may not have the cleanest conception of the characters, but in terms of just pure cinematography and what they're capable of depicting of just the magic of the screen and everything that they're capable of showing with that, I'm amazed by how, de- how capable and determined they are. We talked about Blackwater, of where, their first big action scene, of where, because of the budget, because they weren't sure of what they accomplished it, they film it 100% at night, so that they can cover up defects, they can cover up details, they can hide their limitations. This Field of Fire 2.0 battle... They're so confident in themselves that it is bright, it is full bright on day. Every detail is shown in utter de- is shown in its complete um, detail. And it's just beautiful. It's I love the confidence by which they depicted this. I loved the emotion they put in the scenes. I love the conflicted feelings and loyalties they gave us here. That we're suffering from the same tortured uh, 
the same tortured perspective on these events that Tyrion is, that seeing the horror of this first and foremost right in front of us, as you said, there was a brief moment where we wanted Danny, the great hero of this, the one who's opposing the evil tyrant of Cersei, to lose just because of how effectively this scene showed how horrific war truly is. So I didn't like much of the rest of us going in, up to it, but the last 30% of this is some of the best they've ever filmed, uh, hands down. Agreed. Agreed. Okay. All right. Let's move on to best line of well, the episode. I, I will offer one last detail. Just I, I've threatened before that I was going to bore you with history, and I'm not going to leave that opportunity. Um, okay. I'm going to mute my mic and drink. Uh, feel free. You know, I don't need to have anybody responding to my comments here. I, it's, I really, I'm really, you know, enjoying my own, the sound of my own voice. Uh, one thing that's reminded JK, me. Of, I wouldn't do that. Jk. <laughs> one one thing this scene reminded me of is a historical battle called the Battle of Balaclava of where there's a line uh, that we have in English language now called the Thin Red Line, which came to mind because of the Thin Red Line of Lannisters here. More historically, the Highland Regiment during the Crimean War was basically tasked with holding off an approaching horde of Russian Cossack troops that numbered several times what they had. And a British journalist that was standing on a hill looking down on this, in basically the same position that Tyrion was, looked at it and said that they were a thin line of steel tipped in red. And that essentially it was them with nothing behind them. That if the Russian Cossacks had gotten through them, they would have made it to the British camp and the entire British leadership would have been killed and could have effectively maybe even ended the war, depending on the scale of the devastation. But the the Jamie equivalent, Sir Colin Campbell, looked at his troops and said, there is no retreat from here, men. You shall die where you stand. With his assistant, the Bron equivalent, saying, I sort of call him, we'll do that if need be. And unlike, as depicted here, the Highland Regiment, firing off volleys of their of their uh, rifle muskets straight into the Russian Cossacks, actually held back the cavalry and forced them to retreat, despite the fact that they were just a two-line-deep regiment of, of forces on foot, outnumbered by like six or seven times. Um, so this scene reminded me of that in many ways, in terms of just depicting a thin red line trying to hold back a charging horde of cavalry. And I, I, enj I enjoyed the uh, comparisons to that. Uh, also, just a bit of English language trivia, where we get we get the term balaclava, the ski mask, from that battle, just because of how harsh the winter was and the knitted mask the British car uh, made for themselves during it. So, that's my little bit of, histor of history nerd trivia that came to mind in terms of what they were depicting. Good stuff. Good stuff, Professor Spencer. I try. Um, I, us I usually don't like 10-minute diatribes that have nothing to do with the actual episode, but I do like that one. That was really good. You know, no, I'm, I'm touched. No, I appreciate no, okay. it. You, you've really been yeah. way too kind to me in the ending part of this. You agreed with me once. You've actually complimented somebody on history knowledge. I feel like you got to say something mean about me now so we can keep our usual dynamic going. Mm, we are not done. Okay, <laughs> on to best line of the episode. I get to pick this. I picked alone. What we do is we start at the beginning of the episode. We start working through our favorite lines. We kind of fire them back and forth. And at the end, I pick one. I'm going to start with Chaos is a Ladder. Uh, Bran talking a little finger. Uh, you know, I, I the line itself doesn't mean much, but the fact that Bran knows it, the fact it's said in Littlefinger's reaction is powerful. We've never seen Littlefinger as rattle as he is in that moment, that he looks utterly out of his element just in a way we've never a way we've never experienced so that, that that is a good one i liked it a lot um just going through in order uh, i'll say one, one early line that i like just because it's always nice to have somebody point out the character's hypocrisy is uh bron saying to jamie when they're first hauling back the gold yes i'm sure queen cersei's reign will be quiet and peaceful jamie responding well stranger things have happened and bron looks at him and says 
Like what? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, I like that one. Um, I also liked um, when Arya gets away from the guards and she's talking in the crypts with Sansa. Sansa says he shouldn't have run from the guards. Arya says, I didn't run, and you need better guards. <laughs> Which is a very, very accurate statement that the uh, the level of quality i know we've suffered heavy casualties in the north i know that our best and brightest are now sitting deep, 6 feet deep in the ground but are these guards the best that you have to essentially be defending the entrance to an entire castle so yeah i like that line a lot um i i did not particularly like the, the scene that this line is from but i like the line itself just because i think it's a an accurate and interesting philosophical statement that i remember what it felt like to be brandon stark but i remember so much else now didn't like the scene that much, but I felt that was a powerful line that really hammers home where they're going with Bran, with Bran as a character now. I remember when I used to be a single search engine on a, <laughs> on a big, big white web page yeah. with multicolored alphabet letters. Now I'm so much more. You started at like Google when it was GeoCities was the main site that they could lead to, and now we've just opened up to an entire world of content. <laughs> okay, uh, then uh, Arya. Never fight someone like her in the first place. Good line, good line. Uh, I think it's an accurate take from what they've depicted of Dan, uh, depicted of um, Brienne over the course of this show. Brienne, they've essentially made up as being. Would, would you say at this point that they've painted Brienne as probably the most skilled warrior that Westeros has to offer? Um, I don't know how the Mountain can still fight. Uh, he would have to be in the conversation if he's if he's 100 percent of what he once was. But yeah, I would probably take Brienne straight up against the Mountain. Yeah. I mean, they they like to sell it that Brienne beat the Hound, which I don't think is fair. The man was literally rotting at the time and half drunk. But we saw the Hound hold up to the Mountain when the Mountain was less undiddy. So the fact that she defeated the Hound may may mean that she stands a chance. The uh, Hound was rotting. He, he, oh yeah, he was. Yeah, I thought they were going to kill him off just from being uh, a, like a hard ass and not wanting to actually clean his wound. Which, which is actually what they, well, whether he's dead or not in the books is debatable, but that's actually what they show in the books is that he just kind of drops from the fact that he's literally dying of infection, which is enough of enough enough of the thing to kill you. Uh, what's, what's my next line that I would offer? I've said this one before and I liked it a lot just because of how much it harkens back to a character in a very similar situation many seasons before, but... Isn't their survival more important than your pride? I don't think this one makes it in the top five, though, because John didn't respond to it. He said this line to Mance Raider, and Mance Raider delivered a great comeback to him to essentially say that it's not my pride that I'm fighting for. You're asking me to submit my entire people. It's their pride that matters. It's their will that matters. But the fact that John just kind of just took it on the chin, I, I felt like he had a, many counters that he could have offered there, but he's... The scene was built around him and Danny essentially having their first date, so I guess it would have broken the mood if he disagreed with her. Okay, uh, I've got... I've seen you staring at a good heart. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one a lot. Um, Tyrion line. Uh, Danny says, my enemies are, the, are in the Red Keep. What kind of queen am I if I'm not willing to risk my life to fight them? To which Tyrion responds, a smart one. Yeah, yeah, Tyrion's still counterpunching, even though he's, he's, he's on the mat there. Um, you got any more? Oh, uh, let's see here. Uh, fancy lad school. Oh, yeah, yeah. Men shoot themselves when they die. Didn't they teach you that in fancy lad school? Uh, okay, all good lines. Oh. Uh, what, what, one more. One more. One more. Just because of how powerful a scene it is. Tyrion watching Jamie charge to his death. You idiot. You fucking idiot good one that's not the one that's not the winner the winner 
Line of the episode, season seven, episode four, Sir Davos Seaworth. Mind if I switch sides? <laughs> well done. Well done. I approve. It was well done at the time. And, you know, in many ways, Davos, an up-jump peasant himself, might benefit more under a Dan- under Danny's uh, direct rule and regime. Yeah, and he also was speaking for me when I was watching, in a, like a sort of poetic way, when I was watching uh, Jamie go at, uh, at Danny. I was thinking of switching sides, too. So I think it's appropriate. Funny line. Liked it. That wins line of the episode. Spencer, we get to your favorite part of the podcast, book nerd bitching. Take it away. You know, and honestly, I don't have that many here. So I'm just going to focus on two. Uh, because, as said, most of this episode was, dr- was driven up into two parts. One I didn't really care much about, and one that I was too busy, you know, standing agape to actually write down much in the way of notes. So, uh, first one I'm going to cover is uh, the Field of Fire comparison. That You've seen us over the course of this episode keep on saying the Field of Fire, the Field of Fire. They've not talked about that much in the show, but the Field of Fire is an historical event that every one of these characters in Westeros would be very well aware of. It would be a, a one of those foundational events in their history that everybody talks about as they're getting an education, or even just in stories their parents would tell them, is that when the Targaryens first invaded, they were actually fairly cautious in using their dragons. That Their dragons were incredibly powerful, but dragons are not immortal. They are capable of injury. They're capable of being hurt, particularly under circumstances of where you're not controlling the circumstances that they're being used in. So most of the time that they used dragons, they used them individually. They used them under circumstances of where the enemy was trapped and not in a good position to resist. But at the moment that was the Field of Fire, it was the only instant that the Targaryens used all three of their dragons at the same time. Aegon the Conqueror and both of his sister wives rode them into battle because the Lannisters and the rulers of the Reach at the time, the Gardeners, had allied up to put together a massive army to defeat the foreign invaders. What does that remind you of a little bit right now? Perhaps the Lannisters uh, allying up with a Reach family, in this case the Tarleys, to defeat a foreign invader? Perhaps. The comparisons are very much apparent. Comparisons are also pretty apparent in the sense that, well, one major difference is that the the Lannister and and, uh, Gardner army is massive. It's the the largest armies that Westeros has ever assembled. And against the relatively small mercenary Targaryen force, they succeed mightily. They start forcing back the Targaryen line up until the moment that Aegon the Conqueror sets all three of his dragons loose. And as would be expected, they utterly obliterate the army. Thousands die in fire, more die in the massive rout that results thereafter. And essentially the entire Gardner family line is eradicated. They burn alive there upon the field. The Lannisters survive to some degree and bend the knee, and the the Targaryens march on Highgarden, which, at that point, is only controlled by the stewards of the gardeners, their servants, not even nobles, the Tyrell family, who, wisely but controversially, and something that's still begrudged against in many ways, bend the knee in promise that they will be named the new lords of the Reach, in which case they take over. Famously, as a result of the battle, we get the Iron Throne, of where the many swords that were thrown down, the many swords upon the enemies that were defeated, were put together in a pile, and Baylor, uh, not Baylor, um, my God, Balerion, uh, uses his fire, the hottest fire that's ever burned in the world, to melt them together into this twisted mass of a chair. That If you want to see what the Iron Throne really looks like in the books, Google it. Because what's depicted on the show is fine, but it's very clearly from when they had a much smaller budget. That the twisted 
formation that is the Iron Throne is worth seeing. That it is not just simply Hell a chair. Yes, it is. Hell yeah. Sorry to sorry to cut in your no. book nerd bitching monologue there, but I gotta co-sign that 100. percent If you have not seen the uh, illustration of what the Iron Throne looks like in George R. R. Martin's mind, Google it right now. It's pretty hot fire. It it, it is. It is meant to be a chair that doesn't follow the normal rules of physics or anything about what should be a comfortable throne. It was designed by Aegon to be an uncomfortable place to sit idle, and it looks like something that is very much an ad hoc collection of swords that were piled together into this twisted, towering, uh, terrifying structure. So that's when we talk about the Field of Fire, we're talking about that. And the comparisons that the show is trying to draw are very much apparent. They're very much showing that history is cyclical. And that's a key theme throughout this season, of where throughout the season they've been hearkening back to events that have happened either earlier in the show or earlier in history. That in many ways they are replaying the history of their ancestors now in the present day. And I I like how many similarities they drew between the battles here. In terms of uh, other book nerd bitching... Nope, 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 nope. I have to rule. I have to rule. The speaker is banging the gavel. Uh, so you've compared this scene to uh, the field of fire that happened uh, during Aegon's conquest. You were able to pull out book facts. You were able to talk about what's actually going on present day in the show. Um, you kept it relatively concise. Spencer, I got to tell you, this one passes uh, with a two-thirds supermajority. You can go to the president's desk. Uh, he can veto it. But if so, we're sending it right back, my friend. Okay, you know, I, I appreciate it. You know, it's your level of endorsement that just makes my book nerd bitching all worthwhile. Let's try for one more. I'll keep it simple. This has been a long episode. I'll just focus on one more. We mentioned the Gold Company, which I already did a brief intro to who they are. It said they're a mercenary company composed primarily of Westerosi exiles. One of the details they left out, and one of the things that really makes this not make a lick of sense for why Cersei just goes, yeah, yeah, I want to bring them to serve as my army. I can fully trust them. When I say they're Westerosi exiles, I mean that they are people that were kicked out of rule. These were originally formed by exiled Targaryens. They still carry the skull of Bittersteel, the Targaryen bastard that formed them, under the promise that they would return it home as conquering heroes to retake Westeros in his memory. These are individuals that have previously invaded Westeros like, what, six or seven times over the course of several wars? They're not individuals that are going to fight on behalf of the ruling monarchy. They're going to overthrow the existing monarchy. In the books, notably, and this is a plotline they've completely completely cut from the show, I guess just to simplify the, the various claimants to the throne. But in the, the show, uh, we know that um, uh, Rhaegar Targaryen had, well, we now know three children, but two that he'd officially acknowledged. Um, the Mountain and uh, Sir Aemon Lorch killed the two of them, with the Mountain famously bashing his son's head against a wall. In the books, the possibility is left open in the arrival of another character, also named Aegon, uh, that his son was actually switched by Varys, and that his actual son was placed in Essos so that they could train him up to be an ideal ruler so that they could come home and restore a level of peace and prosperity to Westeros under enlightened rule. That guy has the Golden Company as his personal army that he invades Westeros with. So I think in some ways they're hearkening back to that and referencing them again and then bringing them back as an army to participate in the new various wars to claim the throne. But the idea that they would support the ruling monarchy that is in descendants and, you know, in place, 
uh, from pretty much the same people that has led to the exile of these various outcasts doesn't seem to make much sense. It doesn't seem to fit their style. They would pick their own claimant to march home with. They wouldn't support simply the established authority. Okay. Um, that one, a little more tricky. A little more tricky because I think the, um, the, the show hasn't quite established what the Golden Company is, so the show's not being inconsistent. Uh, this one, razor thin fails. Sorry, Spencer. Uh, one yeah. for two, 50%. Not as good as last week, but, you know, I strive for greatness. I need the I need these checkered moments to help encourage me to succeed. Oh, indeed. Okay. Oh, I think uh, we're at the end of the episode. Let's pause just for a second, and I'm actually saying a pause in the episode. Just going to look through my notes and make sure I don't have a third one. Um, you, know, I, I, you know, I actually got a third one I can talk about. You, you want to let me do a third? Um, yeah, I'm going to give you shit for it, though. So let's start with you just breaking in and saying, oh, actually, I have a third. Okay. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm going through my notes. Sorry. Again, these little assembled notes that I was what I was writing together when I was so excited about the episode. I have a third thing. Would you let me do a third thing so I can go for two-thirds again? All right. The speaker is banging his gavel. Congressman, sit back down. There's one more bill before you. Spencer, book nerd bitching, number three, fire away. And this is, not, this is in no way a complaint. This is just an interesting bit of trivia of where they bring up over the course of this episode that, hey, we've never actually really said who... Tr- sent the assassin with the Valerian steel blade to kill Bran. That this was a pretty key point that they were debating throughout season one. And everybody just kind of left it to the, to to the bottom that the idea of who sent this assassin started the war of the five Kings. When Littlefinger took this blade and said, yeah, it was mine, but you know, I got, I, uh, I lost it to Tyrion. So it must've been Tyrion that sent the assassin that set Kat on her mission of revenge that led to her taking Tyrion prisoner, that led to Tywin taking a personal affront to that and sending troops to the Riverlands under the mountain to burn it to the ground, that led Ned to send his own group of men to go arrest the mountain, that then spiraled out of control and led to total war. This blade, and who sent it, kind of is the foundation for everything that follows in the books. And yet, it's never said, on the show or in the books, who did it? Who sent the assassin? That it's never laid clear. The show implies in some ways at the beginning, as does the books, that the Lannisters may actually have done it. Not Tyrion, but possibly uh, Cersei or Jaime. But we've never seen any further indication that they would. The show in some ways implies that it could have been Littlefinger. But we also, again, never see an indication that he did it. He does like chaos. He does like the idea of just simply poking the hive and seeing what happens, making use of those opportunities to progress his station. Another possibility the book set out that the show hasn't really entertained, and this is one that a character that we trust the we trust the logic and understanding of very much puts forward, is that it was Joffrey that did it. The show offers nothing to back this up. It's not a theory that the show entertains. But when right before the right before the purple wedding, right before um, Joffrey chokes his little self to death, Tin Little Indian style, uh, Joffrey takes some time to humiliate Tyrion. He tears up his book, he pours wine on his head, and during this scene, Tyrion starts to put two and two together to say that he believes, that he thinks that it was Joffrey that sent the assassin, that he remembers, that he heard Robert say that, you know, it would be a mercy if Bran died. To live as a cripple like that, I'd never want that to happen to me. And he thinks to himself that, well, that dagger came from Robert's stores. That dagger was in the Horde, probably of Targaryen relics that Robert took over when he ascended the Iron Throne. that The only reasonable person who could have gotten it then would have been somebody close to Robert. 
Joffrey certainly could have done it, and he would be an idiot enough to actually use a Targaryen blade to uh, have an assassin equip it. And he may have just simply sent the assassin in a kind of psychopathic way of earning affection of his father. We have several scenes in the books of Joffrey kind of being a child that was solely raised by Cersei and never really had a father figure to direct him on a more sane and rational path. And that this may have been a further extinction of it. And he straight up asks Joffrey a couple questions on this point to see whether this is possible. And Joffrey straight up dodges the questions and looks at Tyrion with slanted eyes as if he's starting to think, is Tyrion seeing through me? Does he know what I did? So the fact that this foundational element of the series, this event that stirred everything that came afterwards, is unexplained, book and show, I find great. I, I'm i a you know student of Tolkien. I like the fact when a series has unanswered questions, because it's realistic to a certain degree. Not necessarily just plot lines ending unexpectedly and not continuing forward, but foundational background events that drive the future and history of the world that we're in that people don't truly know the answer of, that people in the story don't know the answer of. And so I appreciate that the show has in some ways maintained this and even uh, taunted us with it to a certain degree that we don't know who sent this. We don't know who started the chaos that is our world. All we can do is suspect. And so, Lee, I present this as my third book nerd bitching. It's just another event that I like that the show has brought to the fore and that I offer book nerd knowledge as a way of expanding a little bit more. Yeah, I, well, the scene that you pointed out in the books I really liked, and I like that the, the books give you um, multiple plausible explanations as to who sent the assassin. And this is the, one of many, many times the book does this, that Martin sets up this sort of thing where you're not going to get an answer, but you can sit and theorize it all day long. And that's why folks like me and you could have long-winded podcasts where we talk about it. I think it's what makes the books great. It what makes It's what helps make the community great. Mm-hmm. Uh, this passes easily to the president's desk. I appreciate it, sir. Thank you much. Okay. I think that's it for the episode. Spencer, is there anything else you want to add? No, I would just say it again that I feel like this episode was more than a sum of its parts. That if you looked at the bulk of the scenes that are depicted, I'd find this episode rather lackluster. But just the incredible gem that is its ending paints my picture of, all, of everything that came before it. I adored their uh, their audacity and brazenness in the final scene. I thought it was some of the best I've ever filmed. Okay, that's it for this episode of the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee, brought to you by the Mangum Talks podcast channel. Check us out on Twitter at Mangum Talks. Give us a tweet, give us a like, give us a follow. Check out our Mangum Talks Facebook page, or you can check us out at www.mangumtalks.com. Until next time, see you. Thanks, everybody.